The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I think a huge thing that's, that's notably evolved in this year's cycle is the breadth of value as more bad actors around the world have frankly used U.S. communications technology and tried to exploit what it provides. That's one category. Then there are, and I want to be very candid about this, there are compliance incidents. And those incidents in particular have involved the FBI overwhelmingly inadvertently conducting queries, and in particular queries involving information associated with U.S. persons, in ways inconsistent with the rules set out by the executive branch and blessed by the FISA court. And that's unacceptable. We want compliance to be effective. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 28th, 2023. Josh Geltzer is the Deputy Homeland Security Advisor at the White House, part of the National Security Council staff. He is the president's point person on the reauthorization battle surrounding Section 702, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act section that authorizes broad collection against overseas targets using domestic infrastructure. Josh joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about 702, the problems it has had, the reasons the government thinks it needs it still and wants it reauthorized, and the tough legislative landscape the government is facing between traditional left anxieties about the statute and those of the Trumpist right. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 28th. Josh Geltzer on 702 Reauthorization. All right. So, Josh, before we get into 702, I want you to orient listeners a little bit about who you are exactly and what your role in the 702 reauthorization is. Yeah. So most people hear the title Deputy Homeland Security Advisor, uh, and they have no idea what that means or like where you are in the in the the White House, or uh, so who are you, and what do you, what's your role in this whole thing? Well, first of all, I'm pleased to get to talk with you, Ben, and, and grateful for for this opportunity. So uh, I am part of the National Security Council team. That means uh, physically each day I'm working out of the Eisenhower Executive Office Building uh, on the White House complex. And I cover a range of, of threats to, to the, the homeland. It's really the homeland broadly conceived. I work on terrorism, uh, both international terrorism threats and domestic terrorism threats. I work on migration management issues, election security issues, work on hostage and detainee issues, embassy security issues, whole host of things, which 
is, is a good lead-in to, to why I'm getting to talk about this topic with you, because FISA 702 is relevant to all of those topics uh, and more. Right. So let's talk about 702 and the White House. You guys play a kind of coordinating role, but despite the words national security in the NSC, you're not an intelligence agency. Describe a little bit your background with 702. You used to be over in the Justice Department at NSD. You have a pretty diverse set of experiences with it. What is 702 to you, Josh? I'll give you a, a very much today answer and then maybe step back and give you some more perspective. So you know, each day uh, I receive, uh, as do other senior officials across the government, a version of the president's daily briefing. And 59% of the articles that appear in the PDB, as we call it, have NSA FISA 702 material in them. Now, that is something of a stand-in, though, a striking one, I think, for just how much information collected under this authority informs those of us who are policymakers grappling with hard decisions. So I experience 702 on a truly daily basis, not just through the PDB itself, but even more broadly through the intelligence products that are the baseline for policy strategy conversations that we often lead from here at the NSC. Stepping back a bit, you know, the, the, my, my experience with 702, it somewhat tracks the evolution of the government's reliance on this authority itself. When I was at the Justice Department 10 years ago, uh, 702 uh, was principally, not wholly, but principally a counterterrorism authority. It was terrorists, in a sense, who started trying to use America's own excellent technologies for bad purposes. And the origin story of, of 702 was as a counterterrorism authority, as a way to work with U.S. service providers to collect on non-U.S. persons located abroad who are exploiting, abusing those services. But now it is much broader than that. Other bad guys have essentially caught up. The Russians, the Chinese, drug traffickers, those who would penetrate our, our critical infrastructure. And so as I experience it today, yes, it is still a source of critical terrorism-related information, but it also touches on the same broader portfolio that I get the opportunity to work on now. All right. For those who have now heard the word 702 20 times in this uh, five minutes so far and are scratching their heads saying, what are these two wonky people using this jargon for? Walk us through, like the very small percentage of Lawfare Podcast listeners who are kindergartners, for the kindergarten listener here, what is 702? What does it allow whom to do? I want to give you a very short answer and then unpack it as, as a somewhat longer, almost historical answer. The short answer is Section 702 of, of FISA is a piece of U.S. law that allows in a court-overseen way the U.S. government to work with U.S. communications service providers to collect communications of non-U.S. persons located abroad where their communications are reasonably expected to have foreign intelligence value. Now, it's short, but it's also complicated. So let me try to unpack what's there. And let me do it historically. Go back to 1978. FISA, the original version of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, uh, was enacted as, as law. And its focus was on U.S. persons on U.S. soil uh, whose communications might be of foreign intelligence value. Now, 
The main part of traditional FISA, Title I as we sometimes call it, it allows the executive branch to go to a special court, the FISA court, and show that a particular individual is a foreign power or agent of a foreign power. And if they can establish that beyond probable cause, they can collect communications of that person. Again, U.S. persons, folks on U.S. soil. Now, that's one end of a spectrum, Ben, in a sense. Then there's another end of a spectrum, which is non-U.S. persons located abroad. And throughout our country's history, collection on them has not been governed by any statute or required to be governed by any statute. It has been governed for decades by an executive order, but those folks have no Fourth Amendment rights and collection happens without a statutory framework. Now, the evolution of technology introduced another category, a category a lot closer to the second one I mentioned, but not all the way there. It is non-U.S. persons located abroad who are using U.S. technologies. Why are they doing that? For the same reasons we all do. Think about email providers. U.S. email providers are often free, they're reliable, they're secure, they're appealing and easy to use. And so just as many of us use those same technologies, so do bad actors around the world. And the question became, what does the U.S. government do to obtain those communications? They're non-U.S. persons located abroad, so they have no Fourth Amendment rights, but they are using these, these U.S. providers. They have a slight link to the U.S. And so 2008, Congress and the president at the time signed into law a new provision of FISA. That's what we call 702, in which a balance was struck. Once a year, the executive branch would go to that same court, the FISA court, and tell the court the topics it wanted to collect on from U.S. service providers, but only targeting non-U.S. persons located abroad. It would tell the court the procedures for protecting that information, how they'd handle it, and it would get once a year approval. But then when it came to particular targets for collection, the executive branch could make those choices and work with the providers while ensuring oversight within the executive branch by bringing the, it to the court in the next year's cycle and by providing it to the relevant committees on the Hill. That is 702. And after it was first passed in 2008, it's been passed a number of times with bipartisan support in both houses of Congress and with presidents of both parties signing it into law. All right. So... The law has and always has had this five-year sunset provision, which requires that once every five years, you guys go to Congress and have the same argument that we had five years ago about whether this is a vehicle for backdoor searches and whether uh, there's, it's actually a domestic surveillance program. Going to get into all of that. But uh, the law expires at the end of December and absent reauthorization. And I want to start by just asking you, what does the reauthorization lay of the land look like for you guys this year? It seems to me pretty different from what it has looked like in the past. And I'm, I'm curious for your sense of how the process was going. Yeah, so I do think there are differences. L let me start with one set of differences, which is the the value of collection under under this program, which is something that that supporters and those just engaged in the conversation have noted has a greater breadth this go around. And we've worked hard to declassify quite a bit to explain this publicly because it's important. It's an important public conversation that something that we often talked about in the past reauthorization cycles as a counterterrorism tool, it still is, but it also gives us insight into Chinese origins of a chemical used to synthesize fentanyl. It has given us insight into foreign actors' illicit plans to smuggle meth across the U.S. border. 
It has helped us uncover atrocities committed by Russia in Ukraine, like the murder of non-combatants and the forced relocation of children. It has helped us identify foreign ransomware attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure. So uh, I think a huge thing that's, that's notably evolved in this year's cycle is the breadth of value as more bad actors around the world have frankly used U.S. communications technology and tried to exploit what it provides. That's one category. Then there are, and I want to be very candid about this, there are compliance incidents. And those incidents in particular have involved the FBI overwhelmingly inadvertently conducting queries, and in particular queries involving information associated with U.S. persons, in ways inconsistent with the rules set out by the executive branch and blessed by the FISA court. And that's unacceptable. We want compliance to be effective. But what's also different this cycle are the ways we have introduced as a matter of policy to address those. And we can go into greater detail about those. But one thing we have said in this reauthorization cycle is we know those work. The fact that they have been implemented as a matter of policy, many of them two years ago, some of them more recently, has given us enough time to see that they have, for example, reduced the U.S. person queries by FBI by 93% and increased compliance uh, rates within those that are still conducted. And we're proposing to entrench those in statute this go around because we know they work and we think they're valuable. So I think those are two key pieces of the dynamic right now. One, a greater set of, of, of reasons to care about this authority, as well as a way ahead that helps us address some of the concerns, and they're real, but also allows us to have a stronger program if we entrench those policy steps in law. All right. But it will not surprise you that the reason I was asking this question was a little bit less rosy than the uh, formulation that you just gave, none of which I disagree with. But I do think there's another side to that coin, which is that traditionally the opposition to 702 has come from the left. It has been civil libertarian in character. And when I say we every five years, we have the same argument. The Bush administration had this argument with the left. The Obama administration had this argument with the left. The Trump administration, again, beginning our, our current craziness, kind of adopted the left's arguments and then sought reauthorization anyway. And now you have the traditional left arguments and layered on top of a set of sort of new right arguments, new hard right, kind of because the center of gravity of a lot of Republicans is still supportive, I suppose. But you have this kind of, you know, this is part of a weaponization story in which the FBI and the intelligence community and the deep state uh, whatever that means, are kind of arrayed against Trump and conservatives. And, and so I'm interested in your sense of the congressional politics of 702. You would not be here having a conversation about it if the administration weren't at some level concerned about where the coalition is going to come from to pass it. Talk to me about the politics. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think you've, you've hit on two categories and, and, and we want to work 
to address both. One is a category of, of privacy advocates. And look, we're, we're all privacy advocates in a sense, but people have differing views of privacy and how to balance it. And, and there, I think we have some very serious things to say about how what we have entrenched as a matter of policy, but what could be entrenched further as a matter of law, addresses uh, those concerns. Uh, and and we're, we're interested in having that conversation. And I think you're also quite right that then there's something else. There is a, a broader gesturing at FISA and in particular 702 being something it's not. And, and there we our work to do is, is public education then because we need to disentangle that. And, and you know, I'll be candid. You can think whatever you want about Carter Page, but that collection simply wasn't 702. It wasn't. And we need people to understand that. And people have various views about other other things that have happened in law enforcement or the intelligence community that simply aren't 702. And so we do think we need to, to talk to the Hill, but talk to the public and to the media so that we disentangle those elements and try to whittle down to a conversation that is as focused on the real thing as possible. And, you know, my, what I've been told is that 60 percent of the current House has never voted on 702. They, they, they weren't there for prior reauthorization cycles. And about a quarter of the Senate falls into that category. So we owe them, as the executive branch, we owe them an education in what 702 is and isn't. We owe them an education in what value it provides, because whatever you care about on the Hill, 702 helps, helps us uh, address those concerns. And we owe them a sense of why we have taken the reforms, undertaken the reforms that we have, and why we think they're working. And we are actively engaged in all of that, because I think we need to, to deal with both categories that you are rightly describing, and both have evolved, but especially the latter has evolved this cycle. I think that's right. So as I look at the policy conversation as opposed to the fantasy conversation, and I want to I treat them separately because the left has some genuine, consistent arguments, and the left here sort of includes the libertarian right, actually. I, I mean the left in the crudest sense. But these are very old arguments, and they're, and they're ones that those of us who have been repeat players in the 702 reauthorization game were really well practiced at. But I look at the, the left argument and I say in a way that is not really true in the, was not really true in the past, it does seem this time to boil down to this question of a warrant requirement for FBI queries of U.S. person data. And for those for whom that was gibberish, what it means is, okay, the, the National Security Agency collects a lot of data from foreign person uh, A to foreign person B that passes through U.S. servers. They get that under 702. They have this huge database. But the foreign communicants are talking about Ben Wittes. This is a real case that really happened once. Uh, I know this because I got a warning from the FBI that somebody was trying to, some foreign actor, I wonder which Russian that could be, was trying to hack my uh, my accounts. And and the, old, the way that came up, I'm fairly confident, and I wrote about it in Lawfare at the time, was 702 Incidental Collection. My name shows up in, in this, somebody queries it, and I end up getting a defensive warning from the FBI. So the question 
on the table right now is whether and under what circumstances the FBI should need a warrant in order to query U.S. person data. I'm interested in this does seem to be where the civil liberties community is drawing a very bright line. I've always known the Justice Department and the executive branch to be in a bright line sense opposed to warrant requirements for accessing lawfully collected information. How do you square that circle in a relatively short period of time? We've only got five months left. Look, it's, it's, it's the crux of the debate. And we, we are adamantly opposed to having to seek approval from a court to query that which has already been lawfully collected by the U.S. government. L let me tell you why. In fact, maybe I can put this in context, because sometimes 702 gets treated as if it were distinctive in the notion of incidental collection. And of course, it's not. I I'll give you a few categories. When you're in the ordinary criminal category, you need to show, generally, probable cause of crime or evidence of a crime to get communications of the, the target. And you know, I mean, they're communications. You know they're going to involve others uh, that that target of collection is talking with, talking to. That is, again, the nature of communication. And of course, those other people do not need to meet the probable cause standard. It is the target of collection who does. Similarly, traditional, Title I FISA, you have a target whom you must show probable cause is foreign power or agent of a foreign power. But again, these are communications. They will be talking to other people, and those other people do not need to meet that same standard. They are the people talking to the target. Here we have the analogous situation. You have those who are targets of collection because they meet 702's standards. We, we want to know their communications, which means they are going to be talking to other people. Once we have that information, the question is what we do with it. Do we blind ourselves to it? to which the answer has been consistently no. The 9-11 Commission, the Webster Commission after the Fort Hood shooting, the main takeaway of each was if there is lawfully collected information in the U.S. government's possession, tear down walls to seeing it and using it to stop bad things from happening to Americans, like what apparently was on the brink of happening to, to you, Ben. Uh, do not erect walls to seeing it and to using it. So it is contrary to those recommendations to suggest that we somehow need to go to a court to look at what has already been lawfully collected. You've noticed probably that I haven't even used the word warrant because it is not a warrant. It is just not what a warrant has been under U.S. law. That is about the collection stage. But I, I'm at least trying to engage with the, the practical notion of going to the FISA court for approval. We don't think it's appropriate. We don't do so in analogous contexts. And what's more, we think it would be operationally devastating. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, so I want to 
ask about the operationally devastating aspect of the concern, because on the one hand, this debate sounds very much like a uh, a kind of, I, I don't know, a sort of philosophical debate, right? Should we need probable cause? Should we have to go before a judge? But uh, the operational side is not philosophical. How is a world in which there's a warrant requirement to query a database any different from there's a warrant requirement to, you know, knock on somebody's door and walk in and, you know, search their apartment? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. And, and the analogy would be if you had to go back to the court for every question you then ask that person once they opened the door or for, for every page you looked at in a book that a warrant already allowed you to take. That is the equivalent here. It is once there's been collection, the notion that's being put forward that we really resist, as you can tell, is that it's possible and appropriate to go back to a court each time you want to query it, each time you want to organize that data so that it's meaningful to you. And let me tell you why that would be so problematic. First of all, it's not clear what standard would make sense. It's definitely not probable cause of a crime or probable cause of an agent of foreign power because often the people are victims. Indeed, they're often not people. U.S. person queries, as they tend to get called, can be companies who have suffered, for example, cyber intrusions, hacks, ransomware, whatever it might be, whom we know from other intelligence might be the victims. And we want to see if they are. We want to see if they are so we can warn them. We want to see if they are so that we can help them mitigate the damage. We want to see if they are so that we can figure out who might be the next victims. Th those victims would not meet a probable cause. They haven't committed a crime. They wouldn't meet a probable cause standard of being an agent of a foreign power, the victim of foreign power. So first of all, it's not clear what this standard would be. But more than that, these things move quickly. That's the nature of intelligence. You see from one piece of collection that there is something bad that might happen to a target who is described, but not described with particularity. And we want to use other databases to figure out who is that target and how do we disrupt it. A U.S. person query of 702 collected information was instrumental to our protecting someone on U.S. soil who has been the subject of assassination attempts by a hostile foreign power. This stuff is very real, and it's very operationally important, and what's more, it can be time-sensitive. Matters before the FISA court are and should be serious matters. When the U.S. government files on a yearly basis the 702 reauthorization or an ongoing basis Title I uh, requests for, for, for uh, collection, those are documents that Lawyers in the National Security Division of the Justice Department work hard to prepare, multiple layers of review. They go to the court's clerks. They go to the court's judge. That's what proceedings should be. The idea that you would do that every time you want to query within already lawfully collected information, it, it will lose the chance to benefit from that intelligence and disrupt the threats to America. All right. So you've described the government's position, but if I had any one of 10 civil liberties groups here, they would say, I understand that's the way uh, Josh Geltzer, the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, the head of NSA, and uh, the director of the FBI feel about it, but we're not going to support any bill that allows surveillance of Americans or the queries, queries based on surveillance of Americans without a warrant requirement this time. And as best as I can tell, they may have the votes to stop a bill 
without it. How I'm curious if there's a a, a way to th- square this circle and say, okay, not a warrant requirement, but a blank that provides a specific check of every time one of these queries is made. Yeah, and I would just say, you know, whoever those 10 people are, uh, they're probably all friends and I respect them because these views are important and privacy matters and and their views on this are important to us and I'm sure they're important to, to folks on the the hill. So we, we do think we have answers to that that, that, that can help assuage some of those concerns. And the place I would begin, Ben, because it's important and it's straight on for the, the US person query issue, is what FBI has done over the past few years. Because frankly, the way FBI conducts US person queries today is an overhaul from where it was a, a few years ago. It's an overhaul that has made a difference. The overall includes a number of elements. Let me hit a few of them. One is that those at FBI must opt in and provide a written justification for opting in to search that which has been collected under 702. And when you say an opt-in, because again, that's a term that people are going to be confused by, what you mean is when you're sitting at your terminal uh, running the Josh Geltzer query, because he's a really suspicious character, and you type in Josh Geltzer, instead of clicking that you don't want it to search the 702 database, you have to affirmatively click that you do want it to include in whatever databases that it's following. So the default is that it would exclude it. Is that is that what you mean by opt-in? That is exactly what I mean. I've gone over to the Hoover Building. I've sat with FBI. I've I've seen. I've clicked through with them this because I I would want to have done that before talking with you and others about this. And you have it exactly. Right. It turns out that the some of, not all, but a significant number of the compliance errors in the past came from the fact that agents, others at FBI, were searching 702 collected information inadvertently. They hadn't clicked to opt out of searching it. FBI gets less than 4% of 702 collection in the first place, but what they get, which has to be linked to predicated investigations, they were searching it inadvertently. They didn't mean to search it. So they overhauled the system interface. And now there are these warnings that pop up. And you must click in. You must say, I want 702 information. And then it has, there's a drop down that says, well, do you fit into the type of category where you should be searching it? And you do. And then you have to write, actually type in your reasons that you fit into that. And then you have to do some other steps for particularly sensitive queries. So there are certain queries, they're called batch queries, that need to go to FBI lawyers before they can be run. There are some on sensitive uh, targets that need to go all the way to the deputy director of the FBI. But for all of them, you now need to opt in. That's a major change. And it's part of why I think we've seen such a, a reduction in U.S. person queries. It's eliminated the, the inadvertent ones. There are also other steps FBI has taken, like that higher level review that we think is really important. We've also increased the training requirements for those who do make a mistake. There is a regimen now of how that is corrected. And if there's another mistake, they may lose access entirely to 702 information. All of that matters. And again, it, it, we know it's had an impact because we've seen from 2021 to 2022, a 93% reduction in the U.S. person queries conducted by FBI and a higher compliance rate within those that are conducted. And we think those are steps to build on. Again, some of those were in 2021, but a few more were introduced this year because we do not think we're done. Instead, we're constantly trying to improve. But we think that entrenching that in law 
so that we, but probably even more importantly, some future administration that cares less about the privacy, cares less about compliance, doesn't roll them back. We think entrenching that into law is really important. Now, there are other categories where I bet those, those 10 people <laughs> you, you imagine, and we would have other things at least to talk about. There may be ways in this reauthorization cycle to build on transparency measures about 702. There may be ways to provide greater confidence in the work of the, the FISA court. There are things we and those folks have to talk about that I think are valuable and important and could uh, let us all emerge with a stronger 702 of FISA that aren't the thing that, that we feel quite strongly about, which is going to a court before querying that which has already been lawfully collected. One of the oddities of the current 702 debate is that sort of at least as far as I've seen, there's no real bill yet which makes it kind of hard, you know, to engage, you know, from the outside. There seems to be a lot of conversations about it. There are some working groups. There's congressional folks who meet about it. But, you know, we're five months out uh, from the expiration of the statute. And I don't know of either in the House or the Senate a kind of working draft of the reauth. And so I'm, I'm curious what your understanding of the state of the congressional legislative, I mean, I guess we don't do legislation anymore in this country, but at what point is there going to be a bill? I don't know the exact answer to that, but I, I, I do want to say this, which is we have for months now, and the kind of formal reauthorization process kicked off in earnest in February with a, a letter that the Attorney General and the Director of National Intelligence sent to the Hill, but also made made public. For months now, we have had conversations uh, on the Hill with members, with staff that we really appreciate. They are chances for us to hear where their concerns are. They're opportunities for us to try to talk through with them changes that could be responsive to those concerns. And they've been an opportunity for us to, to educate, for, for, for me, but even more importantly, for colleagues who, who work this program operationally day to day at, at DOJ and FBI and in the intelligence community to help, uh, help those on the Hill understand exactly what it yields and how it operates and what the guardrails are. And we're grateful for those. When those exactly turn into language, I, I genuinely don't know, but there is time for that. And I think thus far, what we have just appreciated is a willingness to talk through the, these issues and to take advantage of what we have consistently offered, which is a chance to not only be educated in conversations, but to visit FBI, to visit NSA, to see how this works in practice. And we really appreciate those on the Hill, who, who and there are many of them, who've, who've taken advantage of that. And I hope it has helped inform them as we work towards that text moment. And do you feel like, as a general matter, the members, as they get briefed, as you have conversations with them, are kind of dug in on whether it's the, the traditional sort of civil liberties objections, a sort of but warrants uh, argument, or, you know, but you guys are the Biden administration and Carter Page and weaponization and... Or is there a kind of receptivity to, uh, my experience with 702 is when you show people how it works and, and how it doesn't work and what sort of information you get through it, there's sometimes a kind of holy shit moment with these things. But, you know, in times of sufficient 
I don't know, sufficient polarization, you can have that holy shit moment and still not be able to move your position. I'm curious whether you feel like minds are open on this subject. I, I think we, we've encountered um, minds that, that are open, and we're grateful for that because, you know, wh whatever you care about when it comes to foreign policy, foreign relations, national security, homeland security, whatever you as a, as a member might care about, 702 is important to. If you care about fentanyl, you care about 702 being reauthorized. If you care about being tough on China, you care about 702 being reauthorized. If you care about Russian uh, atrocities in Ukraine, you care about 702. If you care about illicit malign influence uh, financial investment in the United States, you care about 702 because it has yielded us insights into that. So we have so much to talk about, about the value of this program, as well as reforms that we think are significant enough and tested enough to talk about, that these are real conversations. And that's that's what, we, that's what we've sought. We have appreciated the time and the open minds that, that we've seen from members and their staff in coming to those. There is still a lot of work ahead uh, to figure out what that means in terms of a bill and in terms of its passage, but it, it is the right foundations for it. One of the things, the, the analogies that I always use when people ask me about 702 is the debt ceiling. That this is kind of in the national security community roughly what the debt ceiling or a government shutdown is in the budgetary arena. That you know, yeah, you can run through the deadline, but nobody, like, there's a cliff there and nobody really knows how how steep it is or how far the car is going to plunge if you run off of it. The administration, including you in this conversation, doesn't talk about it that way. You guys are super, super respectful of the people who are driving the car to the edge of the cliff and you don't use vocabulary that that gives a sense of how dire December 31st is, uh, although the, I suppose the deadline's a little bit soft because you can get that year uh, authorization from the court. But there's some deadline after which, you know, extraordinary measures run out. And I'm curious why you guys are playing with such a light touch on this and why the why you're not saying what the president said in the debt ceiling discussion, which is, hey, we expect Congress to extend the debt ceiling. We shouldn't be playing politics with this. And uh, it needs to happen. And there's a date. Well, I would say this this is something that needs to happen, and there is a date by which it needs to happen. And we think it's of grave concern, the national security, that there's at least a possibility that this authority on which we rely so heavily for so much, you know, might be allowed to lapse. But at the same time, we appreciate the seriousness of the, the quiet engagement we've had, and it leads us uh, believing that we can forge a path there. There are very dangerous scenarios to imagine. Obviously, one of those would be for this simply to lapse. I mean, the, the, the lack of insight uh, we'd have, the, the blinding of ourselves to China threats and Russia threats and fentanyl threats and terrorist threats, especially at this point in time, it, it would be uh, quite devastating. I think it's a fair description. But there are also things short of that that we still think would be deeply damaging to national security. If we had some sort of requirement that meant that we had and knew we had foreign intelligence value, uh, foreign intelligence information, that we could not either 
query for or had queried but couldn't look at because there was some requirement that we wait to brief up a, a court, have that court consider it, and have that court adjudicate it. That would be a terrible position for us, frankly, but a terrible position for the country. That's the opposite of the direction this country has wanted to move in, in which we're using, seeing, using, acting on that information uh, in a way that protects America and protects Americans. So there are some really bad outcomes here, and I, I, I don't want to, to sugarcoat that. At the same time, there are ways ahead that we think uh, can retain the value of this program, can maintain its full efficacy, and in fact can leave us with a stronger program by entrenching some of the reforms we put in place, and we want to work in good faith with the Hill to get there. All right, I want to talk about the compliance issues in the Bureau. You've given a sense of uh, some of the remediation that's happened. But, you know, for those of us who read FISC opinions when they're declassified, often a year after they happen, you know, there's this sense of, oh, damn it, it's another compliance problem. And we, you know, we had them with 215, a sort of string of them in the in the 2010 area, and then they started showing up with 702. And there just seems to be this iterative process where the Bureau or NSD plugs some holes, and then there are some new holes that we didn't know about, and the FISC gets upset, and NSD gets upset, and everybody kind of plugs the new holes, and then there are another one. And I'm, I'm curious... I mean, part of me looks at it and says, you know, the FBI is just a little bit incorrigible on this stuff and they're they're They push and push and push and they make mistakes. Part of me says, hey, this is a complex human system involving hundreds and hundreds of thousands of queries a year, gazillions of acquisitions. I mean, un unbelievable numbers of acquisitions and complex human systems have a failure rate and this failure rate is really low, but it ends up being large numbers. And so I guess I'm curious, you look at the FBI's performance over time in 702 and do you say this is about the failure rate that I would expect? Uh, we got to do something about it. We got to plug this. But you look at this whole system and you say it's a system working. It's the FISC is catching things. The NSD is catching things. Internal mechanisms at FBI are catching things. And there's an iterative process that basically works. Do you say it's a system in which lots of actors are trying to hold the FBI to the law and failing, uh, i.e. it doesn't work? Or do you look at it and say it's kind of a bit of both and the the process of going through this every five years is actually a kind of healthy part of the system? How do you look at this failure rate over time? Yeah, so I guess I'd start by saying, and I know I said it before, but it's important for me to say it again. Compliance errors are not okay. We take them seriously and they're not okay. Uh, no one in government should mince words uh, about that. And so th that's it just, I think, important for us to say out loud. The, the second thing I'd say is it is a complex system. Uh, it's, it's built to um, be um, effective in providing foreign intelligence value. It's also built to have guardrails. That's why, as you heard me mentioned before, there are, for example, there's only less than 4% of the 
702 collection that even goes to FBI in the first place. And then there are queries within that. Um, but it is a complex uh, system. Now, I think we've gotten better over time uh, at, at managing it, but that's two. But three, I don't think we're simply plugging the last hole for a new one to emerge. And I think the sort of drops I've mentioned in our conversation and in the numbers of U.S. person queries, the surge we've seen in the compliance rate, we expect that to be sustained. And what's more, we will figure out other ways to improve. I mean, that is part of why Director Ray established an audit, a 702 audit office full time within FBI to, in addition to the oversight of the National Security Division at the Justice Department, in addition to FISC oversight, in addition to congressional oversight, because he wants people who are thinking full-time, okay, are there either new or continuing problems emerging, and how do we fix those? What are the next set of protocols we need? And so we are not satisfied with simply plugging the last holes. We think there is a way to keep realizing better the implementation of what we think is fundamentally really elegant architecture created by the U.S. Congress through, through legislation at enabling the collection of really, really important information. We are going to leave it there. Josh Geltzer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ben. I'm grateful for the conversation. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me. I did it myself. You need to do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast because it's not just me here. It's a whole lot of people. Promote the Lawfare Podcast. Send out tweets or X's or whatever they're called. Threads. Mastodon about the Lawfare Podcast. Send, you know, truth socials about the Lawfare Podcast. Do it all. Spouts. Uh, Facebook. Whatever social media platform you're using, share the Lawfare Podcast. And of course, go to lawfaremedia.org support to become a material supporter of Lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.